Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello and welcome back everybody to Earth News Interviews. My name is Sophia and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Dean. Hi everyone. And today we have our special guest, uh, Professor Xu Chu. Welcome to Earth News Interviews. Hi Sophia, hi Dean. Thank you for the invitation. We are super excited to have you and a little extra note for our listeners. Uh, Xu was our professor for second year petrology and our first ever field course. So Xu, question for you, what has been your favorite field memory uh, from your teaching at University of Toronto? Well, that was the year with you guys at Whitefish Falls, because that was the second year, uh, my, my second Whitefish Falls trip, and I'm, I became better at this, so I really enjoyed uh, the Whitefish Falls with you guys there. It was quite unfortunate we were not able to do that again uh, in this summer, but I'm looking forward to the next year, and I hope the next one will be better than you guys. <laughs> we hope so too. Although it's pretty hard to beat, I would say. Ours yeah. is pretty good. Shu, <laughs> um, I was wondering uh, what really got you interested in, in metamorphic petrology? Did you start out wanting to go into geology, or did it kind of, was it a detour? Uh, kind of, yes. It's something like an accident. I was aiming at the department of physics when I was preparing for my college, and then I ended up with the geology. Um, then geology is also kind of physical science, so I just started from there. And metamorphic petrology was basically the most most difficult course in my uh, first two years. So I was really fascinated by this. I, 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 I felt I did not learn enough in the, in, the, in the class. So I continued my uh, undergraduate thesis with this topic. So you're kind of like inspired by the challenge and that, and then because you had to work extra at it, you kind of started to, to enjoy that more? Right. I, I like this topic because it challenged me more. So where did you, uh, where did you study geology? So my college was uh, the Peking University in Beijing. Um, it's uh, a more liberal arts and science kind of university in China. Would you say that the undergraduate geology program there differs a lot from the one that we have at uh, University of Toronto? Uh, not really. Uh, we are both on the conventional side of the geological education. So we emphasize a lot on the field trips, uh, observations, sample descriptions, the conventional uh, hardcore geology. And then what did you do after uh, Peking University? So I went to Yale, continue my study in metamorphic petrology. <laughs> and I spent six years at Yale uh, with Professor Jay Agu. And then I taught one year at one of the uh, state of university, uh, state university of New York school at Fredonia, uh, which is not very far from Toronto, just on the other side of the border. And then I uh, worked as a postdoc uh, researcher at Rice for one half years, and I came here. Uh, what kind of research do you do today, and has that changed over the course of your research career? 
well, I'm a metamorphic petrologist. Uh, so I study metamorphic rocks to understand the organic dynamics and the uh, geochemical processes. In particular, I'm very interested in the processes that transport heat and materials in the lithosphere. So my general projects try to um, integrate the fieldwork, experiments, uh, observations, analysis, and uh, numerical simulations. And I use the tools like petrologic thermodynamics and kinetics to various rock assemblages to understand how the rocks evolved during the organic processes, how they were deformed and transformed uh, in response to elevated temperature and pressure. So uh, I have decided to broaden my scope a little bit so that the metamorphic petrology that I study can be useful um, for other subjects, like the interaction between the lithosphere and uh, the surface of the Earth, or the uh, uh, implication of the metamorphism in the global tectonics evolution. Is there a lot of overlap with, uh, say, economic geology? Well, yeah, sure. Economic geology, the ores, are uh, basically hard rocks. Most for most cases, right? And a lot of these rocks are deformed and altered in response to the fluid, uh, in response to the temperature or some other bizarre uh, processes in the crust. So the uh, knowledge of metamorphic petrology is, and the igneous petrology are fundamental uh, to the knowledge of the uh, transfer of the elements and the mobility of the elements and the deposition of the ore body. Let's uh, start a bit with the preamble and then we'll get to the paper summary. Uh, so the geologic record for a long time was explained through a term called catastrophism, which um, is that significant changes in the rock record uh, were caused by punctuated short-lived catastrophic events like floods, meteorite impacts, earthquakes, large volcanism, etc. But as geology became more formalized, a new theory took center stage called uniformitarianism. And this theory says that processes deep in Earth's history are actually mostly the same as the gradual processes that we can observe today. And with this connection, geology became a much more experimental science. And our paper today is one such example of this. Uh, Sophia, take it away. Thanks, Dean. So the paper we'll be talking about today uh, was published in March of this year, and it comes to us from Nature Geoscience. So just broadly, metamorphism as we know it is the gradual change in rock mineralogy in response to changes in pressure, temperature, and fluid influx, for example, from hydrothermal fluids. So metamorphic rocks are rocks whose mineral assemblages is different from the parent rock or the original rock that there was before the metamorphic event happened. So a common metamorphic reaction that this paper discusses is the formation of the mineral talc, which is a clay mineral that is fairly soft. So you can use it to create jewelry or uh, little figurines. That's what it's been typically used for. 
uh, from uh, serpentinite. And uh, serpentinite is a uh, type of rock that contains uh, this group of minerals uh, that are broadly defined as uh, serpentine minerals. So other than the parent mineral serpentine, Shu, what else is needed for this reaction from serpentine to, to, uh, to talc to happen? Well, we need carbon and we need water. So basically, this is a hydration and carbonation process. And so this carbon and water, it must come from a hydrothermal fluid, correct? From a hydrothermal fluid. And in this study, they uh, hypothesized that this water, this uh, fluid, was from the adjacent sedimentary rocks. Right. And, and this layer of sedimentary rocks was found underneath the, the original serpentinite. And the main question that these scientists are uh, in this paper are trying to answer is how quickly this metamorphic reaction actually happened. So there's this really famous chart that uh, Dean and I and other earth science students like us are introduced to in their second year petrology courses that compare the type and scale of geologic event to the time that it usually takes. So at the very top, you have uh, like taking the longest time, which is approximately 1 billion years, you have the supercontinent cycle. So how long it takes for an ocean basin to open and a continent to break up, and then how long it takes for that, and then add that to the time that it takes for that ocean basin to close up and then another continent forms. So uh, that takes the longest uh, amount of time, but at the very bottom, you have things like seismic slip, which can take as little time as a fraction of a second. So, of course, we, ha we kind of have to keep in mind the scale of these events, right? You have these really big regional events happening versus these small local events. So we also have to keep that in mind. But here's where things get interesting. Both time extremes of these geologic processes, so the really long time scale and the really short time scale, are pretty well defined. But these fluid rock interactions, which are central to metamorphism or, or one of the main actors of it, are poorly constrained in terms of the length of time that they take. So why are these fluid rock interactions so difficult to constrain? Well, first of all, this process is open system. So it is by itself difficult to constrain because it has a very high degree of freedom. And second of all, because the time scale is short, we do not really have a good ruler with a high resolution for the time. So if you consider the isometric dating, usually the uncertainties are probably plus minus a, a few million years or slightly shorter than that. So you cannot really differentiate these uh, very short processes using this uh, uh, ruler with a very high resolution. So this is where the diffusion simulation comes into play. Uh, diffusion basically is the second law of thermodynamics. You cannot stop this uh, if you put a rock or a suite of rock in a high temperature place environment, then the diffusion happens, right? Uh, the elements diffuses, diffuse from a high concentration side to the low concentration side. And this diffusion is controlled by a diffusion coefficient for a specific elements. And in this case, you can see the uh, lithologic boundary is extremely sharp, which means the diffusion cannot take place for a, lo for, for, for a long time period. And this is where the conclusion is from. So this whole alter alteration process took place probably only in that case. 
Mm -hmm. So just to go back what you said before, so the whole problem about defining these fluid rock interactions is because uh, the, the, I guess, most popular technique for age dating geochronology gives us a time plus minus like millions of years, which isn't good enough to constrain these type of interactions. Does the, because another term that uh, another article that kind of supplemented this one introduced was geospeedometry. Does does this kind of procedure, geospeedometry, address the, the issue with the, uh, I guess, uncertainty in time? A geospeedometry is a general term that is a category of methods uh, used to determine the speed or the rate of the geological processes. So in this example, the diffusion simulation is like one method, and there are other methods based on uh, the texture of the rock. For example, uh, if you compare uh, uh, the volcanic chromatite with the uh, olivine rock, then in the chromatite, the olivines are acicular, which means they are needle-like, and this is generally uh, interpreted as the consequence of very fast cooling. Right. And then the other thing that you mentioned was that it was very important to have this sharp boundary. These researchers specifically picked an outcrop that had this very sharp boundary. Now, just to give a little bit more detail about the outcrop, it was an ophiolite, which uh, by definition is basically oceanic crust that has been uplifted onto a continent. And so this outcrop had a very sharp boundary between the parent rock, which was serpentinite, and then the uh, hydrothermal fluid altered rock, which was talc. Now, I wasn't actually quite clear on why it was very important to have this sharp boundary and whether that really affected the reason why they picked this outcrop instead of like hundreds of other metamorphosed outcrops that exist out there. Probably this is just the outcrop that caught their eyes. Um, the soapstone is quite famous in uh, in. Norway and in Western Alps, it's really white. And the serpentinite is usually very black in color. So this is a very clear lithologic contract. And the other reason here is probably they want to understand the process of carbonation of the serpentinite, because that is the link between the lithosphere and the atmosphere, the surface carbon reservoirs. So uh, you just asked about the sharp boundary. So this is like the just the second law of thermodynamics. So if you put this boundary there for a long time, then it will smear, right? The black stuff will diffuse to the white stuff, and the white part will diffuse into the black part. And this will be uh, this will become more gradual instead of a nice knife sharp boundary. So here the presentation of this outcrop with the knife sharp boundary between the white stuff and the black stuff, suggests that this this suite of rock was not uh, put in a, a hot condition for a very long time scale, and this is where their estimate is from. Mm -hmm. So in this um, in this paper, what the research team did was they took core samples across uh, a soapstone fracture in the serpentinite because that's where that's where the the fluids came up from to try to model the method and time it took for the metamorphic fluid to propagate in the serpentinite to form talc. 
So the computer model that they made was fit with variables, showed that the total alteration took around 20 years, uh, which is a very short time. And with a metamorphic front propagation rate of 13 centimeters a year, which is on par with the spreading rates of some of the fastest spreading centers in the world, like the East Pacific Rise. So uh, based on your experience of uh, fluid interactions and just general metamorphism, uh, how fast is this rate? Is this just incredibly fast, like we've never seen metamorphic uh, reactions like this before? This is really fast. It's 20 years. It's not 20,000 years. It's not 20 million years. So in the study of geology, usually we consider the geologic processes proceed in a million years or in thousand years. So this is 20 years. 20 years is comparable to like the uh, aseismic tremors in the subduction zones. Basically, it's like ultra-fast earthquakes. Sorry. And this is the alteration of the real rock. Okay. And uh, it's a physical process. The water has to infiltrate. The water, the, the components carried by the aqueous fluid reacts with, with the rock. And then it creates its, its way through the rock, uh, creates a process and then propagates forward. So 20 years is extraordinarily fast. I know I should probably save this question for later, but I just absolutely have to ask it now. Is this unique to fluid interaction or like fluid-induced metamorphism, or can it also happen for pressure and, and temperature-induced um, metamorphism? Well, to my knowledge, this is one of the few documentation of very fast fluid rock interaction. But I just feel there are more to discover. Basically, we haven't haven't started looking at the other examples. And I kind of believe this is not so unique. This should be more common. We just need to discover. Okay, yeah, we might we might follow up with you on that later because <laughs> that's super interesting. Uh, so to put this paper in a broader context, geologic processes are not known for their speed, like you said, but uh, research like this proves that reactivity may be faster than we thought initially, specifically that metamorphic processes uh, usually take millions of years, or at least we thought they did. So metamorphism is a really interesting subdiscipline of geology to study right now because it may have a large role in carbon emissions uh, because of the release of carbon and metamorphic reactions. But it's also likely to have been an important driver of carbon drawdown because of um, orogenesis and then that the production of silica, which then is weathered and then that goes into the ocean, which draws down carbon. And secondly, many mineral deposits owe their genesis to metamorphism. So, for example, orogenic gold deposits, VMS deposits, uh, etc. And if these processes, which are dominated by fluid rock interactions, take less time than, than was initially believed, CO2 sources in sinks and mineral deposit formation may happen, uh, in geologic terms at least, instantaneously. So this term uh, of instantaneously in geologic terms. What does that mean for us? Well, uh, when we talk about the carbon cycle, we need to consider the time scales. The carbon cycle on thousand year uh, scale is largely controlled by the buffering between the ocean and the atmosphere. But beyond that, if we consider like millions of years, the geologic time scale, 
then we can consider that the ocean and the atmosphere reaches reach a steady state. So the global carbon content in the atmosphere was largely controlled by the input and the output in the lithosphere. So for this study, although this uh, outcrop documents a very fast fluid rock interaction, about 20 years. However, in the regional, on the regional scale, this process can happen here and then there and then there, like episodic. So for this kind of uh, carbonation process, it can take like geologic time scale, like thousands of years, millions of years. Although each episode, each pulse took place at very short time scale. So this can have a very important implication on the uh, global carbon cycle on a geologic time scale. So as we know, the serpentinite, serpentinite is a mantle rock, which means it is stable in the mantle. So it is not as stable on the surface and it reacts with uh, carbon CO2 either from the atmosphere or from the geofluid. And this rock is converted into a, a hydrated products and the carbonated product like talc and uh, magnesite in this case. So this ultramafic rock is considered as a, a giant carbon sink. And uh, during the period of the uh, wide exposure of the, the ophiolite or ultramafic rocks, we can consider this is an additional very giant carbon sink and uh, that can drive the uh, uh, global cooling over the geologic time scale. This is uh, another paper just that just came out by Francis McDonald in Science, I believe, the intense weathering of ultramafic rocks in tropical areas. So one thing that really surprised me about this was especially that 13 centimeter per year propagation rate. And it's surprising to me because when I think of rocks, I think of them not being very, usually not being very porous. Like it's like solid slabs. But one of the conclusions of this paper is that the chemical reactions can drive some of the permeability in the rock that's being metamorphosed and increase the rate of that metamorphism. How exactly is porosity and the rate of metamorphism related generally and in this paper? Porosity is basically the volumetric percentage of the void space in the rock. Okay, although the rock may appear solid, but there, there are pore spaces. So uh, if the porosity is high, then it is easier for the fluid to infiltrate, right? This is intuitive. Basically, when there are a lot of pore space, if the rock is porous, then it's easier for the fluid to come through. In this case, the fluid infiltration and the reaction creates porosity, basically largely because the volume of the product is smaller than the volume of the reactant, right? So if you consider that you react with something and uh, react something and the product is has a shrinked volume, then the porosity is increased. So this is a, a self-accelerated process. The fluid infiltrates, the fluid reacts with the minerals and the products have a smaller volume, which means the a volume fraction of the void space increases. So that makes the infiltration easier 
that facilitates the fluid infiltration. So the fluid can further react with the uh, with more reactant and creates more uh, prostate. And this is how this process could proceed physically uh, at very fast rate. Now, one of the, I guess, big issues that come up in geology is the scale problem. I always find it kind of difficult to imagine, you know, these these smaller experiments that happen in a very controlled setting scaling up. And I think that this paper may also have a scale problem because uh, what these researchers say is that, so they found these, uh, they, they did these uh, calculations and models on a subset of cores in the outcrop. And then they scaled that up to uh, the region, which is uh, like a approximately 70 kilometer square uh, region of uh, an ophiolite sequence, which had this soapstone alteration. And they said that perhaps uh, this took an equivalent amount of time uh, for or like tens to hundred to a hundred years for this entire metamorphic alteration reaction to happen. Do you think that there's enough evidence to generalize uh, their research or do you have any doubts about this? Well, this is the uh, further implication from the direct description of the rocks and uh, the simulation results. Well, I believe there's no reason to reject this idea that the safe rocks should behave the same uh, when they react with the fluid, with the same fluids, right? And uh, over uh, several square kilometers area, the, the uh, this logic units are the same. Uh, the top part is the uh, serpentinite, and the bottom part is the uh, mass sedimentary rock that supplies the uh, water and uh, uh, CO2. So although they only studied two profiles, I believe, in this paper, but I think it's quite reasonable to uh, say that this whole area should behave the same in the same way when they are infiltrated by the fluid. And uh, I just want to add up to this, uh, this question. So Sophia, you, you asked a very good question. So when we study ge geology, we consider the time scales of millions of years or even a thousand of years. Even thousands of years is too long to be reproduced uh, in a lab, right? We have to achieve uh, experiment in probably days or weeks or years, probably that's the minimum, the maximum, right? So how confident are we in that the uh, process we produce in the lab could approximate the natural processes? This is a big question mark. For this study specifically, the key parameter is the diffusion coefficient, right? Um, in the diffusion coefficients are determined in experiments and the experiments were done in days or weeks and uh, how can we believe that this whole this same process could behave the same way when we scale up to years or thousands of years? Well, I think we are conf we are reasonably confident in this because we also apply the same modeling, same type of modeling, and the same uh, diffusion models to other cases, and they make sense. 
all right we do not only apply this simulation to these uh, very uh, crazy examples we also work in normal uh, metamorphic twins and they are they just look right the diffusion simulation the time scale derived from the simulation is consistent with the asymmetric dating and uh, that means probably the, the same processes happen in the nature and in the labs if only uh, if only scientists got more funding to do these decades, <laughs> century long experiments. Or more stable funding without, you know, that doesn't change between administrations, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not forcing someone to like pump out five papers a year. <laughs> so this outcrop has probably been exposed for quite some time. Uh, is there any particular reason this analysis was done now? Was there any new technology or technique that allowed the researchers to read the rock in this way? Well, I think this is more in the ideas or the philosophy. In the previous studies, this is a very famous outcrop, and this must have been studied in previous projects. But they, the previous researchers did not pay attention to this sharp boundary. I think this is basically the, the philosophy. They did not think this could happen this fast. There must be something wrong with other stuff, like the simulation, like the diffusion coefficients. I, I don't think this group of people, the authors, were the first group of people who saw this outcrop. So I wonder, now that we're talking about philosophy, <laughs> Dean immediately piped up. I saw his ears like perk up. <laughs> Um, even though he's wearing headphones right now, I just assumed. What do you think this paper says for the uniformitarianism versus catastrophism debate? Or is there really a debate anymore? And how, how, does, this, uh, how does this paper fit in that story? Well, this is a solid, robust evidence supporting a very fast process in geology, in the normal geology that we know, not things like volcanic eruption or something, or earthquakes. The petrologic process could proceed this fast. And this is the uh, one of the first few pieces of evidence. And I'm just expecting more. Okay. This study, and uh, along with a few studies uh, just years before this paper came out, just open the door for us and we don't know how unique this is or how common this process could be this paper came out and uh, this is a piece of solid evidence and i just expecting expecting more in the future so that will i will save this question uh, for a few years and uh, then we'll be able to talk about this. So this this is opening things up in in metamorphic petrology in particular. But could this be opening up uh, uh, new things in other related fields in geology or maybe just earth system science? Uh, does this have any like large impacts on like we we mentioned uh, like you know carbon sequestration rates potentially? Are there any other like large implications that this could uh, really cause uh, an issue with? Sure, like carbon sequestration, this is the perfect natural example of carbon sequestration. Um, 
they are there are uh, several different attempts in carbon sequestration, and uh, this is one kind of attempt that we react the carbon CO2 with the ultramafic rocks because the ultramafic rocks are really reactive with carbon. And the uh, questions are the kinetics, how fast they could react in the, the physical process, uh, uh, the, like the stuff associated with the process of fluid pressure, etc. So this is just one direct thing. Uh, this, is, this shows that the carbon sequestration in the ultramafic rock is doable, within a reasonable time scale, right? And uh, the small uh, scale outcrop and the very short time scale suggests that this is possible and uh, this is possible to be documented by the technique with that we have. So we can apply the same technique that like diffusion simulation to other systems like ore deposits. People have known that the uh, hydrothermal deposit or hydrothermal ore deposit could be very fast, but how fast? Like years, uh, 10 years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, we, we don't really have this uh, sub-quantitative estimate on that. Maybe the uh, formation of a coarse wind can be in years, uh, maybe in response to earthquakes, who knows. Uh, we can basically use the same philosophy, <laughs> same technique to approach the other, the, these other problems, like how fast the coarse vein uh, or bearing coarse vein can form. Maybe this is another eye-opening, this will be another eye-opening results that will come out, maybe in years. I, I will not be surprised if the art deposit happened in years. Hmm. So. There was an extinction event at the end of the Ordovician about 450 million years ago, uh, the second largest extinction ever seen. And one of, one of the theories, modern theories, is that the mass erosion of the Appalachian mountain chain was a significant carbon drawdown um, from the atmosphere, causing the ice age that really triggered this, this extinction event. Could this kind of process, or could the could this new information on how how fast these processes can work, help refine these large carbon drawdown events in in the past? Of course, yes. There is a perfect natural analog, the Himalayas. So during the uplift of the Himalayas, the Cenozoic saw a gradual decline of the global carbon content and the global temperature. Although here we need to be very careful, uh, we do not create the confusion that the Cenozoic is from 65 million years ago to present. This is on a totally different time scale of the global warming that we are usually people are talking about. But the Cenozoic is cooling. There, there is a continuous cooling trend. So the Appalachians were basically the same as the Himalayas. And uh, it's very reasonable to uh, conclude or hypothesize that this uplift of the uh, Appalachian plateaus cooled down the Earth's surface due to the sequestration of carbon from the atmosphere. 
I read somewhere that the Appalachians kind of had the opposite effect that the Himalayas do today on the amount of carbon. So I think it was that the Himalayas um, are releasing carbon because of metamorphic reactions and the Appalachians did the opposite. Is that, does that hold any truth to that? Well, the opposite. The Appalachians releases carbon. So it's quite debatable whether the late alteration uh, extinction was driven by cooling or warming. So uh, there were several papers arguing for the uh, carbon source from the metacarbonates within Appalachians at that time. And this metamorphic process might release a lot of carbon from the carbonates. Basically, you heat the marble and they release CO2. And uh, this uh, re release of CO2 it was greater than the sequestration of CO2, and uh, that drove the global warming at the end of alteration. I, I really like how much debate that there remains over so much of, of this Earth history in, in Earth sciences. Because as a student coming in onto the stage, you're, you're worrying about, you know, like, it seems like we have everything all figured out. Everyone else has already been thinking about this for decades. Like it's really hard to kind of chisel out my own, my own area where I can make a contribution. But it really like one thing I really like about the earth sciences is there's it's actually relatively new compared to a lot of the other fields. Plate tectonics theory, you know, is only decades old, and and you know that framework exploring the earth's history within that framework is only decades old and so there's actually so much research potential that new students can contribute to uh would you would you agree of course yes and this non-uniqueness is the most fascinating part of the earth science because you cannot run experiments that long and you cannot run experiments on the earth scale so you just approach this big, big problem from a, a very narrow aspect, from narrow angle, and you have your conclusion that makes sense. And you need to consider all the other pieces of evidence. It's like a jigsaw, and put all these together and make your story make sense. So for the incoming students in earth science, I would say, uh, just try this, all right, and then you will be fascinated by this uncertainty in this earth science. So science is not just quantitative. Science is more an uh, intuition. It's both quantitative and qualitative. And earth science is somewhere between qualitative and quantitative. So there's a lot of stuff left for the newcomers in earth sciences. Earth science is kind of like fluid rock interaction. It's not very well defined. Either <laughs> <laughs> the weather forecast, right? It was super uncertain when I was a kid, but it's becoming quite accurate now, right? And this is very fast evolving and like the earthquake forecast. In theory, this should not be possible, but we can do something. We, we know the, the theory and we can do something to, to do the long-term forecast, 
like within next century, there is like fifty percent of uh, of probability that there will be an earthquake heavier than five, something like this. So this is not purely quantitative, but it's still extremely useful. Now that you've vouched for Earth science, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a tough question because if you weren't an Earth scientist, who would you be? Well, I. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect or an interior decorator because my parents were both civil engineers and my grandmother was also a civil engineer. So when I was a kid, uh, uh, there were tons of blueprints in my room. Sci- science seems seems very like such like a creative enterprise to me. It it shares a lot of similarities with those disciplines. My question is, if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in the earth sciences or or any field, what would it be? Well, I would like to look for the evidence of the existence of, or non-existence of exo-civilization. Mm. Because that helps us to understand why we are here. Okay, it's philosophical again. <laughs> why we are here, why Earth is habitable, and uh, where human sapien is going. It's cool. Right? So if we know for sure that there's we are alone in the universe, this is really bizarre and weird and creepy. However, if we know there is a, another civilization somewhere like light years away from Earth, this is kind of also quite creepy. Yeah. Right? We might as well just accept that it's really creepy right now. We just have a really creepy universe. We don't know which one it is, but we know it's creepy. (laughs) Right. So, I I mean, either way, it will change our philosophy philosophy fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And we are kind of in this uh, blurred area. We don't have either the evidence supporting the existence or denying the existence. That gave rise to this uh, space of this the wildest imaginations. And this is the fascinating part. It's kind of like earth science. We don't know the answers, but we look for the answers. This is just like earth science. And this is the fascinating part. Yeah, in many ways, earth science also like informs that, that quest as well. Exactly. For example, why the Earth is habitable, right? Is this due to the uh, plate tectonics? Is the initiation of plate tectonics on Earth unique? Is subduction unique on Earth? Well, we, we basically know there's no plate tectonics on Venus and Mars. So how critical is this plate tectonics in the habitability of the planet? Well, we don't know, but we can, we can think about this. So everyone, everyone can contribute just a tiny amount of their wisdom to the uh, advancement of the earth sciences. I mean, everyone has the opportunity. Sophia, would you like to end the episode with today's quote? 
Yes, uh, thank you, Dean. So uh, this quote uh, comes to us from John Jolly, who was a 19th century physicist and geologist, which actually was kind of perfect because you said at the beginning of the episode that that's that that was kind of your that was kind of your thing, physics and geology. So it's perfect. This wasn't planned, I promise. <laughs> so um, what he said was that geologic age plays the same part in our view of the duration of the universe as the Earth's orbit radius does in our view of the immensity of space. Somewhere between immensity and eternity. Well, Shu, thank you so much for for being with us here in this episode. We had a lot of fun. We talked on the micro scale with fluid rock interactions, and we went all the way back in time to to extinction. So this was really awesome to see just the 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 span that metamorphic geology has. Great, thank you, Sophia. Thank you, Dean. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun here. And、uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you tune in again next time with a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 